If you would please take your Bibles and open them to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Before Advent, we were studying uh, John's first epistle, 1 John. And what we find in this epistle is something that is both pastoral as well as a polemic. That is, he's making a defense of the gospel against false teachers. He's exposing the false teachers and their false teaching. What we've seen is that the way John constructs his argument is he has two foundational truths. And then he speaks of the three claims false teachers make, and he rebuts that. But then he gives the three tests of, as to whether or not someone is truly a Christian. And then he expands, and then we're in the second expansion right now, or the first expansion. When we're done, he will expand once more. And so it's sort of an upward spiral in terms of his argument. The basic truths that he builds his argument on is the incarnation and the fact that God is light. The reality of the incarnation is something we've just celebrated in Christmas. God came in the flesh, which we see in the birth of Jesus. But I think it is something that we fail to appreciate fully, in part because we have a negative view of the body. When you read Paul's epistles and he keeps talking about the flesh, you know, that it, it sin and temptation. Um, So when it comes to the body and the incarnation, I think we really sort of get off center. Um, In the Friday edition of the Mars Hill Audio Journal, Ken Myers uh, uh, was interviewing a guest who mentioned a poem by a man named Brian Wren. And I want to read it to you. It might seem a bit strange. But I think it's because, well, I think our view of this poem will reveal our view of the body. Good is the flesh that the word has become. Good is the birthing, the milk and the breast. Good is the feeding, caressing and rest. Good is the body for knowing the world. Good is the flesh the word has become. Good is the body for knowing the world. Sensing the sunlight, the tug of the ground, feeling, perceiving within and around. Good is the body from cradle to grave. Good is the flesh that the word has become. Good is the body from cradle to grave, growing and aging, arousing impaired, happy in clothing or lovingly bared. Good is the pleasure of God in our flesh. Good is the flesh the word has become. Good is the pleasure of God in our flesh, longing in all as in Jesus to dwell, glad of embracing and tasting and smell. Good is the body for good and for God. Good is the flesh that the word has become. It's a gift from God. This is how God made us. The false teachers would disagree. For them, the body is nothing. It's all about the spirit. And I think sometimes we are more like the false teachers and we care to admit that we, we don't really care so much about the body. We simply talk about the spirit, that, you know, spiritual things. And we really miss something truly important. John begins with the incarnation, God in the flesh. That which we have seen and touched and heard. Um, that's where we should begin as well. The coming of Jesus into the world is the foundational truth.
I don't want to go over everything that we've seen, but in chapter 2, verse 28, to chapter 3, verse 10, John fleshes out the first of the three tests. There are three tests. Obedience, love, and belief. In chapter 2, verse 28, he begins to flesh out the test of obedience. And what we've seen, this is before Advent, is that he does so in a very unusual way. If you were to tell people, you need to obey the Lord, I don't know that you would do what John does. But what John does is he says, listen, the Lord is coming back. The Lord, in fact, did come. We live in between that, so you need to be obedient to the gospel. The two Advents, as we've seen the last four weeks, we live between them, between the incarnation, Jesus coming, and Jesus returning and the second uh, coming. So John begins with the return of Jesus. Look, if you would, I have you in chapter 3, but look at chapter 2, verse 28. And now, dear children, continue in him. You know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. So much here, but we're just reviewing. But I would point out that a person doing what is right is not the cause of them having new birth. It is the result. It is the evidence that they have been born of God. If we have been born of God, like father, like son, we should act like our heavenly father. We should be like him. And verse number one is one of those amazing verses we find in scripture. How great is the love the father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. The Father has loved us with great love. We are called the children of God. And as John says, this is what we are. It's amazing. In verse number two of chapter three, he speaks in the present. Dear friends, now we are the children of God. We don't know what we're going to be like when the Lord Jesus returns, but we do know that he is returning. But some might say, and in conversations with some of you, um, we come from a tradition where the second coming is always emphasized. It's the second coming, you know, Jesus is coming back any moment now, and you need to get ready. Um, one might wonder, why does John put such emphasis on that? Because that event in the future defines all of reality. Human history will mean nothing without the second coming. It's what defines human history. And as God's people, it is what defines us. We don't know exactly what that's going to be like. We don't know what we are going to be like when Jesus comes back. But we do know, in fact, that he is coming back. We will see him as he is, and we will be like him. Then John turns to, you know, Jesus is coming back. Well, he actually did come already. And he came to remove our sins and to destroy the work of the evil one. Okay? 
And this is important, and it goes back to what we saw in chapter 1. The false teachers had made three false claims that John refutes. First of all, they say that sin does not affect our fellowship with God. You can do whatever you want with the body. The body's not important. It does not affect your relationship. It's a spirit-to-spirit thing. And John says, no. If we claim we have no sin, we walk in darkness. Okay? The second false claim is that sin does not exist in us. It's not really sin. It's not really our nature. John answers this as well. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The third false claim is that sin is not revealed in our behavior. Well then, (laughs) what is sin if it is not seen in our behavior? If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And as I pointed out when we went through this, there's a progression of sorts. First of all, we lie to others about we don't sin. Secondly, we lie to ourselves. We're deceiving ourselves. And thirdly, we call God a liar. The reality is we are sinners, but Jesus has come to remove our sins. So he's talked about obedience. He's fleshed that out. Now he's going to talk about the second test, that is love. And he will flesh this out. This will begin in verse number 11 of chapter 3. This is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. And here it is. It's a second test. We are to love one another. As I said, he's expanding on what he's already mentioned. So go back to chapter 2 and look at verses 7 and 8. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard, yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. See, one of the things that's, that sort of makes false teachers exciting is they say, we have a new doctrine. We have new insight into scripture. Uh, You've always been told this, but we now have something new. And John says, basically, no, this is old. This is the old command. And as we saw in Leviticus, um, Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. So it's an old commandment. And then John confuses us by saying, but it's also a new command. How can he say that it is a new commandment? Because in the Lord Jesus, this love is seen perfectly. Yes, we had the commandment that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, But we don't really quite do that as we should. And then here comes the Lord Jesus into the world and we see love in perfection. In him we see it. Its truth is seen in him, as John puts it. It is the new love that we see in the Lord Jesus. But it is not the new teaching of the false teachers, which is what they use to somehow drum up business, if you wish. So, the commandment is that we are to love one another. But not everyone does that. So look at verses, back in chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, 
if the world hates you. The love that we are supposed to have one another for one another is contrasted with the behavior of Cain, the first human being born into the world. Adam and Eve were created. Cain was born into the world. And the hatred, which had its origins in the evil one, resulted in murder. The first man, the first person born into this world is also the world's first murderer. By the way, the word that John uses, you know, for us murder can somehow be a... We're used to the word, if you wish. It, it doesn't really strike us. Um, but the word he uses is literally to cut one's throat. Some translations have butchered, that Cain butchered his brother. So it isn't murder like you pull the trigger and a bullet and it seems very you know, sanitary. No, no. This was face to face. He killed, he butchered his brother. And why did he kill him? Was it because Abel was bad? Was it because Abel was wicked? No, it's quite the opposite. It's because Cain hated him and hatred results in murder. If you know the account from Genesis chapter 4, we're not told specifically why Abel's offering was accepted and Cain's was rejected. Some have argued, well, Abel gave an animal, something from the flock, and Cain wrongly gave something from the ground, the produce. Uh, I would say that's wrong. That's absolutely wrong. Because we find in Leviticus the various sacrifices. Some involve animals, but you also have the sacrifice of first fruits. So the issue is not, oh, you're supposed to give an animal Cain, and you didn't give an animal, and that's why you, your offering was rejected. No. He was rejected because of his attitude. God says, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. And some would say, well, see there, he didn't do the right sacrifice. We go to the New Testament to find the answer. Hebrews 11.4 By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks even though he is dead. So it's not the sacrifice per se. It is, in fact, the attitude of faith. Cain did not have this. In its place comes hatred, and so he butchers his brother. It is because he hates him that he butchers him. And in this, John would tell us, you want to look at the world? Go to Cain. Cain is the prototype. He is the world in microcosm. The world has followed in his steps. And so do not be surprised if the world hates you. This is the mark of the world. Jesus told his disciples the last night before he was crucified, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Imagine, God comes into the world, the one who created everything, and what the world hates him and wants to kill him, and they do. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. So, the spirit of the world is that of hatred and of murder. As one writer put it, as we move on, it's a relief to turn from John's 
exposition of the world's hatred to his teaching about the love that should be manifested in God's people. We will look at the evidence of love and the essence of love. Verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. The emphasis here is on we. The world hates. Cain hated. We, on the other hand, are those who are loved. We love our brothers. We have passed from death to life. And love is the evidence of that transformation. You should remember how love is mentioned in the rest of the New Testament. The first of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. The sign of the reality of our faith. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. It's interesting. Faith is to be expressed in love. Not, oh, I believe, I believe. No, it is to be expressed and demonstrated in love. And then the three Christian virtues. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love, Paul tells us. Earlier in 1 John, he has told us whoever loves his brother lives in the light. There is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. This is what John is fleshing out in our passage today. But we should take note of something quite subtle, but it is important. Um, We find it in verse number 13, which we went through and we sort of missed it. John addresses his readers here as brothers. Thus far, it's always been children, my dear children, my little children. But now he addresses them as brothers. Um, Why? Well, because the hatred that the world has is for all of God's people, and those people are brothers and sisters in Christ. As I mentioned earlier, and I don't know if you saw in the news, Some of our brothers and sisters were butchered this past week on Christmas Day simply for the fact that they are Christians. They are our brothers and sisters. The point I think John is trying to make is not simply that we are not to hate. That's a mark of Cain, if you wish, hatred. That's part of it, but he's been talking about the hatred of God's people. But hatred itself is wrong. If anyone hates his brother, or anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. That's verse number 15. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. You may recall that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount spoke of anger toward one's brother. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother without cause will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Hatred leads to murder. And one could argue, hatred equals murder. But we are not of the world. We are not of Cain. We are to be marked by love. And what is love? Look, if you would, at verses 16, 17, and 18 of First John, John 3. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, 
and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. What is the essence of Christian love, of Christ's love? In a word, self-sacrifice, giving of oneself. In the case of Cain, he took a life. He killed his brother. He took his life because he hated him. Love, on the other hand, is the giving of one's life for someone else. Laying down our, our lives for others. Cain is given as the supreme example of hatred. And Jesus is given as the supreme example of love. It could be argued that one's life, my life, is my most precious possession that I have. Your life is the most precious possession you have. And if I take your life, I am taking the most precious thing that you have. And therefore, it is the greatest sin that we can commit against another person. In the Ten Commandments, the first four deal with our relationship to God. The last six deal with our relationship with each other. And the first one of those is, do not commit murder. Do not steal, do not rob another person of their life. That's hatred. Love, on the other hand, is to give your life for someone else. Jesus said to his disciples, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You don't take somebody's life in murder, in hatred. I hate you. In a sense, seeking to take their life from them. But instead, in love, I give my life for you. In Romans 5, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He gave that which was most precious. He gave his life for us. And if this is what Jesus did, then what is it that we should do? As John puts it, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But let's, let's be careful here, because we might say, yes, I'd be willing to die for you. Um, well, can you help me out with something? Well, I, I, I don't have any time right now. Well, you know, it's like, we'll do the supreme thing, but not, not anything less than that. And I think John wants us to be clear. Um, if somebody, if we have material possessions, if we have something that may on some level be precious to us, of value to us, and we see someone who doesn't have something, who is in need, then we should, in fact, in love, give to that person who is in need. There must be a willingness for us to surrender that which is valuable to us. You know, if we give somebody something that doesn't mean anything to us, then one could argue that's not love. But when something has real value to you, but you see that somebody else has something, then, in fact, you give it to them, you do so in love. You'll notice that John says you see that someone is in need and then you see that that person has in fact needs. I see and that person in fact has needs. 
So in pity, we are to give to the one in need. But you'll notice how John writes it, that we are to give in love, but not love for the person. Oh, I love you, dear brother. I love you, dear sister. Therefore, I'm going to give to you because you are in need. What does he say? It is the love of God. It is because I love God that I, in fact, will demonstrate that love to someone who is in need. So, if somebody says, I'm a child of God, I'm a Christian. These false teachers are claiming to be Christians. One of the tests is this. If you have the love of God, it is to be demonstrated in giving to those who are in need. So verse number 18 is the key. Dear children, and now he reverts back to children, let us not love with words or tongue, both actions and in truth. We live in a culture that speaks often of love. We have love songs, love poetry. We have a lot of words about love. And John says, listen, you need to demonstrate it. It needs to be shown in your actions. At the end of the previous section, verse number 10, John wrote, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not the child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Love for your brother. It is, an evidence, it is the essence, but it's also evidence that you are a child of God. John has now expanded on this. Truth is the connection between verses 18 and 19. We just finished verse 18. Now we come to verse number 19. And here John does what he did previously. He digresses. He sort of goes off on a tangent. He'll come back for the third test. But in verses 19 to 24, we have an important digression. It is the matter of assurance. Because when I look at the test that John gives... I must confess that I fail this test time and time again. Maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe I'm not a child of God. I would say that if verses 19 to 24 were not included in 1 John, many people would lose all hope. I can remember very specifically talking to someone here on this front pew who was concerned that he, in fact, may not be a Christian because he had fallen short time and time. Who doesn't? John, in this passage, gives us great reassurance. Look at verse number 19. This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us We know it by the spirit he gave us. The ESV and the King James have very similar renderings of verse number 20. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. 
when our conscience says to us, how can you be a child of God? Look at what you've just done. How can you be a Christian? You have failed the test, the basic test that John has presented of obedience, of love, and belief. How can you be a child of God? And John says, listen, when our hearts, when our consciences condemn us, God is greater than our heart. He knows all things. And this is not a matter of information. He knows us, that we in fact are his children. You'll notice at the beginning of verse number 19, the first sentence, and the last sentence at the end of this paragraph, begin with, this then is how we know, and this is how we know. What John has in mind is assurance. How do I know that I am a child of God? That I have assurance? Well, there are times when you may say, I I really don't know. I'm beginning to doubt. I don't have what some people would call the assurance of salvation because of my actions, because of my thoughts. In short, our hearts condemn us. And John says, listen, there's something far, far greater than your heart. And that is God himself. What if, on the other hand, your heart does not condemn you? You may have gone through a valley of, of darkness, of, of doubt, of wondering, am I a Christian? And then you come out of that and you're like, thank God I'm a child of God. I, I feel the presence of the Spirit and I, I have assurance. And John says, listen, if you have that, it's a gift from God. This confidence comes from God. It's not, look at me, I'm a good person. Boy, a few days ago I was was in the toilet, but now I'm out and things are great. No, it is a gift from God. This assurance, this confidence is a gift from him. We should recognize there are times when our hearts lie to us. And there are times when our hearts are at rest in his presence. There's something, there's someone greater than our hearts, and that is God. When our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. When we are at rest in his presence, God is greater than our hearts. It is because of him that we have this assurance. At the end of this passage, in verses 23 to 24, John restates the three tests. I don't know if you notice it when I read it. And this is the command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. So that's the third test, belief, which the Lord willing we'll look at next week. And to love one another as he commanded us. That's the second test. Verse 24, those who obey his commands, that's the first test, but the third test, he gives them in reverse order here. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. This is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. As God's people, we live between the birth of Jesus and the return of Jesus, the second coming. And we are to be marked by obedience, by love, and the Lord willing, we will see next week, by belief. I think most Christians would probably put it in a reverse order. They would want belief to be the most important thing. You have to believe the right stuff, and then only then can you be a Christian. Well, no, that's not how John does it. You have to obey God's commands. And what is the first command? What is the most important command? We are to love one another. 
Love does not come naturally to us. On some level it does. I'll, I'll take that back. I mean, the love that a mother has for her child seems quite natural. Um, but the love for other Christians, people who are quite different from us in many ways, perhaps. Yeah, we're supposed to love them. This is a sign that we belong to God, that we are a child of God. And when we begin to doubt, when we begin to lose hope, when we begin to wonder, boy, I don't know, I don't, I don't know, God is greater than our heart. And we should rest in that. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus gave his life for us. We who by nature are the children of Cain, we want to take people's lives, not literally and figuratively in our hatred. We want revenge. We want to be vindicated. We don't like it when people make us look smaller than we think we should. But we are your children. We should be like you. We should be people who love one another. And not simply in word. It's easy to say, I love you. It's something else to give of one's life. To give of one's possessions. That which is valuable. One's time. One's attention. but we are to love one another. And yet at this point we freely confess that we do not often love one another as we should. And then we begin to doubt. We begin to wonder, am I really a Christian? I thank you for your grace that we can rest in you, that you are greater than our hearts that might be lying to us and condemning us. And we can rest at peace in your grace. Here we are at the end of 2019. You've brought us through this year with its highs and its lows. But you've always been there. We know that by your grace you will continue to be with us in the coming year. Thank you for your love, for your grace, your mercy. How patient you are with us. May we as your people love one another as we should. And now as we leave this place, may your spirit and your grace go with us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.